Governors around the country are reversing measures to open back up and mandating masks as transmission of COVID-19 continues to climb. Except for Governor Brian Kemp in Georgia, who, despite a surge in cases in his state, sued the city of Atlanta to preempt its mask ordinance. The Trump administration is attempting to sidestep the CDC, ordering hospitals to send their data directly to a database at Health and Human Services in Washington, D.C. Major League Baseball starts on Thursday, and the NBA tips off a week after that. Rather than raucous crowds, they'll play to empty venues. This is America Dissected. I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed, and I've never felt more like a star athlete because I, too, am recording this from under a blanket in my office. Last week, we spoke with COVID-19 Communicator-in-Chief and all-around public health mensch, Dr. Anthony Fauci. And he told us what we all already knew, but the administration he works for doesn't want to admit. It's so clear that we are in a a very difficult situation, globally and in the United States. And that's earned him the ire of the president's cronies, who've been leaking negative opposition research about him. One even shared a political cartoon about Fauci, calling him Dr. Fawcett. But if that's meant as an attack, someone needs to think that metaphor through. Faucets give you water, and water is life. Even the insults coming out of this administration are a failure. Fauci responded this week. And I have to tell you, <laughs> I think if I sit here and just shrug my shoulders and say, well, you know, it's that's life in the fast lane. <laughs> you know, it, it is a bit bizarre. I don't really fully understand it. Dr. Fauci may be being diplomatic, but we shouldn't take this lightly. This attempt to discredit Dr. Fauci is about more than one man. It's about a much broader effort to discredit science and evidence in general, which is a really dumb thing to do in the middle of a pandemic. Take the president's press secretary, Kaylee McEnany, who, when asked about Trump's desire to open schools, said, and I quote, the science should not stand in the way of this. Um, what? And then there's Governor Kemp in Georgia, who sued his state's largest city when it tried to require masks. I'll let Stacey Abrams say it. From the beginning of this catastrophe, Brian Kemp has demonstrated he has absolutely no competency in this process. All of this points to a broader cultural moment that is shaping this pandemic and is being shaped by it. What happens when our lives come to a grinding halt because of a virus no one knew existed a few months ago that's already killed more than 140,000 people and preventing it means we have to distance from each other? Some mix of boredom, anxiety, frustration, helplessness, and chronic questionable hygiene has started to affect us all. And normally, when we have this much time on our hands or we're stuck inside, we look for some kind of distraction. For a lot of people, that's sports. But without the ability to share space, both on the part of athletes and fans, we spent most of the spring and summer, usually the most exciting part of the NCAA basketball, NBA, and NHL seasons, without them. But in America, sports are about a lot more than just friendly competition, athletic feats of speed, strength, and agility, and camaraderie. In America, sports are big business. Billions of dollars are made and spent every year on sports, professional and amateur. And understanding that business and the broader culture it can teach us about may give us a different view into the dynamics of this pandemic and its impact on our culture and society. My conversation with Michael Bauman, a senior writer at The Ringer, after the break. America Dissected listeners, if you're enjoying this podcast, and want to take a deeper dive into the way that society impacts our health, I hope you'll check out my book, Healing Politics. In it, I diagnose the epidemic underneath this pandemic, an epidemic of insecurity, and the empathy politics we need to treat it. I hope you'll check it out at healingpoliticsbook.com. 
We're lucky today to be joined by Michael Bauman, who's a staff writer at The Ringer, covering uh, mostly baseball, but but also the intersection between uh, sports and society. Michael, I'm really excited to talk to you. I, I spend most of my days talking to scientists, not that scientists are not fun and interesting, but you know it's always fun to switch it up. And you and I met uh, actually when we reversed course, and uh, and you interviewed me for a story about baseball opening up. So it's it's fun to to be on the other side of it now. Yeah, convenient that this works or it works the other way around. I wish that happened more often. Yeah, well, look, I um, as somebody who spent most of my high school and college years somewhere between sports and science, uh, this is this is kind of fun. Um, you know, I love sports, and they were such an important part of my development as a person, as a leader in the work that I used to do, uh, and in some ways still do. Um, and I've learned a lot. You know, and sports are a big part of our society, particularly in this country. And can you tell me, uh, as someone who thinks about this professionally? What do sports mean for us in our society? How do you how do you think about that? How do you capture that? Sports is the way I used to put it. Is sports are a metaphor for war and war is politics by other means. Sports are just this gigantic monolithic uh, force in, in our culture and our economy. Millions of jobs, including mine, depend on uh, sports happening. Billions and billions of dollars are spent. This is how a lot of people, you know, a lot of people view sports as an escape from from their daily lives, or a lot, and a lot of people think they view it as an escape from their their daily lives, but it's a it's really an extension of, of their own identity. So I think there's like a low grade. Sometimes I don't know. I went to college in the SEC, so sometimes not low grade uh, sort of tribalism to what team you root for really making up a, a, a large or what sports you root for really making up a huge part of your identity. So it's it, it seems silly, but it's really at the very least, I think it's a metaphor for a lot of or an extension of, you know, a lot of really more complex social and political issues. Mm. And what do you think it means for us that sports have been, you know, between at least since March canceled? And what is the impact you feel like it's had? So what I keep coming back to is what in baseball uh, is called the green light letter, which uh, is a letter from President Roosevelt to the commissioner of baseball, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, uh, in the 1941-42 offseason, where Landis essentially said, we can shut down the sport and send all these healthy young men overseas. And Roosevelt said it would be good for the national morale if you guys keep playing. Mm. So some players got drafted, some players went into the service, but the league kept going. And baseball is incredibly proud of that. Uh, that legacy. Um, you know, baseball's incredibly proud of coming back a week after 9-11 and the Yankees going to the World Series that year. It's mm. at least baseball, just because it has the longest and most most extensively chronicled history of American sports, really takes pride in its own its own place as a signifier of American culture and normality. And so this is the longest that, that we've been without sports since organized sports started up in the United States. And wow. uh, I think there's a a real palpable sense of absence. And I think that that's a big reason why a lot of these leagues are so, and a lot of fans are so eager to see sports come back. Hmm. And why do you think some leagues are considering coming back while, while others really just decided to cancel the season altogether? Well, I think it, Depends from sport to sport. You know, you look at something like, I mean, the short answer is it's feasible and economic makes economic sense in some cases and it doesn't in others. So you'll see NASCAR was one of the first to come back. One thing that you know about NASCAR is that if you're closer to your competitor than six feet and your face isn't covered, you're probably dead already. So that's 
it's much easier to do that safely fair point than it is to to play soccer for instance where you're touch or basketball or you know you're playing basketball you're playing indoors you're touching people all the time there's a lot more potential for disease transmission uh in that case and there are some some cases where if a sport has a big tv contract there are billions of dollars at stake or something like Minor league hockey, for instance, is shut down. Minor league baseball is not coming back this year because they depend on in-person stadium attendance for revenue. Uh, and so there's less – they just know it's not going to be safe no matter what. I've talked to um, some amateur baseball league commissioners. They're just like, it's not going to be safe in time for us to get a season, so we're just going to can it and mm-hmm. save whatever money we can and, and try again next year. Um, and so – more money's at stake. The farther apart the competitors are, the easier it is to start back up. And where we're getting into some sort of complex territory, particularly with baseball and basketball, is where yeah. those lines start to blur. You know, we've watched the German Bundesliga and the British Premier League come back, albeit to empty stadiums. And, you know, in, in some ways, this reflects just differences in their society's abilities to control the virus. How much do you think the virus itself and the politics around the virus are in the driver's seat, so to speak, when we think about decisions to come back? When you put it that way, not as much as I would like, to be totally honest. I think this was actually – baseball has been back for months. Uh, In early March, the Korean baseball organization started back up, and they were televising that on ESPN now. And uh, you know, I watched a few games and wrote about that. And I said Mm -hmm. right then that my fear is we in the United States are going to look – at baseball being played in a country that took this way more seriously than we did Mm. Uh, and where the measures that the KBO has taken or the Premier League or the Bundesliga are going to be much more effective in their society, in societal conditions, underlying societal conditions that you can't see on a TV broadcast. And we're going to say, if we do that, it'll be safe for us. Mm. And uh, sure enough, two months later, that's about what's happening. I mean, look at the, the underlying public health conditions, the economic conditions. And you see societies that for all their other flaws are just, they view human beings as something other than a source of short-term economic gain, which is not really the way things operate here. So you see people sitting farther apart on the bench. You see coaches wearing masks, referees wearing masks. They have altered travel and hygiene procedures. And what they're doing in Germany or the UK or Korea is a lot of you'll see a lot of those same protocols in the United States and the NBA procedures and the MLB procedures. Mm. And they represent the limit of what a sports league can do. And a lot of the rest is up to the government. And, you know, you can see the effects of those governmental differences in the the infection rates and death rates. So what you're saying is, in a lot of ways, unfortunately, um, we have seen this frustrating interaction between popular demand for sports and a public policy that has failed to curtail the virus interacting in a way that potentially could put a lot of people at harm. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly right. And I think, you know, I I tend to be critical of Major League Baseball just because that's, that's the league I cover the economic side of the most. But there's a real limit to their power. And we've seen this with other times where sports has intersected with political or public health problems. You know, we've seen this with uh, with drug use, with domestic violence. Um, you know, we've seen this with the intersection of of sports and uh, disparity in racial, po- racial power dynamics in, in this country. And we've seen even well-intentioned leagues, uh, such as they are, fail to make a difference because there's their entertainment venues. Like, it's like asking Mickey Mouse to to end a pandemic. It's mm-hmm. it's just not what these institutions were really designed to do. So there's a limit to to their expertise and their capability. And you know, they're 
they're trying, but uh, you know, we'll see how far they can go. Yeah. So toward that end, we saw this long drawn out conversation between the players and the owners in baseball. And I think it represents a, a bigger conversation about the ways that the safety of coming back versus the raw economic interests of players and owners alike can sometimes interact. Um, can you walk us through what happened and, and how they resolved it and what that maybe tells us about about that interplay between economic self-interest and short-termism versus you know long-term focus and safety? It's very complicated in baseball. The NBA and NHL have an easier time because their season was already in progress. They would only have to essentially come back for the playoffs. And crucially, both of those leagues are in a salary cap system where if revenues go up, player wages go up. If revenues go down, player wages go down. It's There are all kinds of shenanigans in there, but basically that's how it works. It's not how it works in baseball where wages aren't tied to revenue. So mm. owners have obfuscated about how much money they're taking in, how much of that gets gets shuffled around to players. And within the climate between labor and capital and baseball is such that we were probably heading towards a work stoppage in the next couple of years anyway. And so within to that climate, the owners, in their attempt to try to reformat the season, tried to push through added financial concessions. So we're coming into this on a run of, uh, I believe, 17 straight seasons of record revenue for Major League Baseball. Uh, in the And in the past couple seasons, the average player salary has gone down. And so now that with canceling games, without having fans in the stands, the owners are saying, well, we might not turn a profit, so we need to cut wages. Mm. Uh, it's not even that they don't have the cash in reserve or don't have the, the, the equity in reserve. They're saying, you know, we want to cut the draft. We want to cut amateur bonuses. We want to cut player salaries. And so owners didn't move off of that position. Hmm. Um, they came to an agreement in March that said players will get paid their prorated salary however long the season is. And ownership spent about three months trying to to renege on that, that agreement. And the players union, understandably, resisted that. So it's only in the past couple of weeks of, that they've realized that if we're going to have a season – the players are going to get paid what they're contractually owed. So it's been a long and frustrating process with very little movement, with lots of, of hysteria and gnashing of teeth and rending of garments on both sides. And uh, I will say this, everybody wants to play, the fans, the owners, the, uh, the players, but at least those last two groups seem to be operating from the assumption that there is a safe way to play baseball without altering the, the lives of players too much. And I don't know if that's a faulty assumption or not, but that's they're doing the best they can to ensure that that they play games and keep everybody safe. But it, it all flows from from that first assumption. Hmm. And yeah, as we talked about at the at the top, that there is a real symbolic value of professional sports. And if they were to come back and have to shut down again, um, the potential societal cost or the societal signal is potentially worse than having never started up in the first place. I, I uh, you know, we, we talked about a league where players at least get paid. And one of the most frustrating things about COVID-19 is that we have watched a deeply unequal burden of disease and an economic burden of the financial consequences as well disproportionately impacting uh, black folk and people of color across the country and low-income people as well. 
you know, generally we think of athletes as being highly paid megastars. That's not the case in college sports. And you've got an NCAA that makes a lot of money off of the labor of young people who work for free, right? And we already saw 23 members of the LSU college football team test positive. How do these conversations change when we're talking about college athletes and amateur athletes in general who aren't being recompensed for the potential risk that they're putting themselves in? There's, I'll, I'll sort of answer this in a roundabout way. I used to cover uh, college baseball as well as professional baseball. And this is, it's a big thing in college baseball that, um, particularly in the NCAA tournament, pitchers would throw. 130, 140 pitches on a start, come back on short rest and risk doing real damage to, to their arms in pursuit of a, a championship. And there's, mm. it became a real moral issue. And some college baseball diehards uh, would say, well, you wouldn't have a problem with a professional pitcher doing that. And even if that were true, professional pitchers tend to be older. And even if they're not, they're pros. They're getting paid. This is part of the the deal that they're they're making, whereas amateur athletes are you know, in many cases, they're kids. They're mm-hmm. they have no financial fallback, no million dollar contracts to fall back on. And I think that the duty that amateur coaches and athletic directors and administrators have to protect their players is so much bigger than than it is in the pros, where athletes are well compensated and unionized, and they have somebody they they're better able to look out for themselves, and they're better able to look out for each other. Uh, whereas the power dynamics in college sports tend to mean that practically it goes the the opposite way that the players have no protection from from a coach who might not act with their their best interests at heart and college football specifically is administrators coaches university presidents freaking out because they realize that there are billions of dollars on the line and if they don't get these unpaid workers into the stadiums if they don't get fans into the stadiums in a lot in a lot of cases it's going to upset the F, the entire economic balance of college sports and in some cases maybe the university system and because of this we've seen in a few places players have started to realize how much power they have mm-hmm. if they stand together so uh, you know, we've seen at UCLA, Oklahoma State, Kansas State, players coming together, not just for their own safety, but in, in a lot of cases saying, hey, we have a mostly black football team. And in Oklahoma, uh, Oklahoma State's case, a right wing nut job coach who who cozies up to, to racist politicians. This is messed up. We want something to to change about this. And mm-hmm. so they're realizing that they have the power to demand, um, you know, whether they what kind of long term um what kind of long-term effects this has, I don't know yet, but I think that the players are starting to to wake up to to the fact that they have more power than they were told, and they're starting to exercise that. And that's been, for all the negative effects of events of the past four months or so, that's been mm-hmm. really exciting to see. Mm. And we really appreciate you helping us to, to, to understand the, you know, in so much broader terms, the ways in which we entertain ourselves in normal times what they tell us about our values and our culture in crisis times. And I think understanding the economics of sport is critical to doing that. I want to ask you, you one of the things that you said early on caught my eye, that sports are an analogy for war and politics is war by other means. What does this tell us about this moment in our politics? Because really, the big issue here uh, is not the biology of the virus itself. Of course, we need to understand that. And if we were led by that, perhaps we'd be in a better position. But really, it's the politicization of the virus and 
the use of the virus to divide us in our politics. And, you know, we have this base in our society where we venerate athletes and, and athletics and sports. Is there any insight that you can offer us about how we move our politics into a position where we focus on tamping down this virus and addressing uh, the, the nuts and bolts of solving it so that we can move on with our lives from the experience of sports and, and what it tells us about our culture? Yeah, I mean, this is sort of it. This is an angle that I've sort of been working on for the the past five years to sort of try to to cover sports from this angle. You know, I've written a lot about the impact of, of player unions and uh, the ethical implications of certain labor practices within baseball. And you know, occasionally I get asked, you know, why are you sticking up for these these athletes, these millionaires? And the answer is, I don't really give a damn about them as such. It's Whatever the owners or the general managers are doing to these players in public, your boss is doing to you in private if you take away a couple zeros. And so that's, I guess, where I, I come back to what we can learn from from sports is how we see power exercised mm. uh, in these dynamics. What, you know, what we saw in baseball where owners are saying, hey, there's this national ec- economic and public health crisis. Thousands of people are dying. Millions, tens of millions of people are out of work. Let's see if we could steamroll our workforce into taking pay cuts. And so, you know, we'll see. We've seen this across other industries too, where the billionaires who who take the excess value of of labor are trying to squeeze just that little bit more out uh, in this the time where everybody's scared and everybody's uncertain. And so, you see stuff like that. We, you know, pay attention to the dynamics of a large block of NBA players are saying, should we give people a distraction while you know, while black people have uh, the nation's attention as we're protesting over uh, over the death of George Floyd and protesting police brutality, should we distract people from that? And in so doing, play during a pandemic that's disproportionately effect, uh, affecting black people. Essentially, you've seen some of the, the reports coming out of what that Disney World bubble is going to look like under armed guard, under like police lock and key, essentially. And what, you know, what does that look like you, when you really interrogate the not even you don't even have to really interrogate when you think for more than four seconds about the the symbolism of that. And so sports, it's very low stakes in and of itself. It's very public, but it operates in the same way that the rest of society mm. does. And so for that reason, I've found it useful as, you know, as a test cases is, you know, sort of a, a, a metaphor or teaching mm-hmm. tool about about more important political issues. I'm uh, I'm imagining a book you'll write someday called War Games. Huh. But um, anyway, I uh, I really really appreciate the the insight that you bring to this, and you know I, I do think that the entertainment in in our society takes on a really high value, and understanding it as a public demonstration of all the private circumstances under which so many of us have had to to work and operate. Um, is really powerful. And I appreciate you bringing that to this podcast and helping us to understand what it can tell us about, about COVID-19. Michael, so last question we always ask everyone is, um, what, how have you been spending uh, these very odd days? Um, I've been cooking a lot. I've been, uh, my wife is home from work, so I've been figuring out how to operate with another uh, another human being in our not that big apartment. Hmm. Uh, and so four months in, we're, we're still bumping into each other a lot. But you know, I'm I'm just trying not to. You know, I've I've still been at work, so I've got that to 
to keep me busy. So I've been trying to keep busy, trying not to, to go nuts. It's been, but it's been a struggle. Well, we we're grateful for your work and, um, and very much empathize with that. And so, uh, looking forward to, um, to chatting again soon, hopefully not in these circumstances and, and thank you for your work. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. As usual, here's what I'm watching right now. A vaccine candidate out of Oxford University shows promising results. This raises the question, how soon will a vaccine save us from ourselves? By the way, I'll be speaking with vaccine activist Ethan Lindenberger in a few weeks about the anti-vaxxer movement and how it may harm our efforts to get people vaccinated against the coronavirus. Stay tuned. Also, the vice president who leads the White House's coronavirus task force issued new guidance to hospitals on reporting their COVID-19-related numbers, things like case numbers and bed availability, directly to a database operated by Health and Human Services, bypassing the CDC in Atlanta. This is unprecedented and scary. Never mind that the CDC has been the country's repository for health-related data since its inception, and that it has dedicated channels and operations for this kind of thing. But there's a more sinister issue here. It opens the door to propagandizing the pandemic, which, of course, this administration has been trying to do since the beginning. But in taking data away from the CDC, it can use these data to tell the story at once, and worse, stop others from telling the truth. Public health is political, and the Trump administration's response appears to be pretending that the pandemic is over, and stifling, undermining, sidestepping, or character assassinating anyone who says otherwise, never mind the death tolls that continue to tick upward. And at Crooked Media, we're organizing to deliver that new leadership. That fight starts in Michigan. Never mind being the state with the best lakes, best cherries, best music, and the best Arab food in the country. It's also one of the most important states on the electoral map. Join me on Team Michigan and go to votesaveamerica.com to sign up. If you'd like to support organizations on the front lines caring for some of America's most vulnerable, donate to Crooked's Coronavirus Relief Fund at crooked.com coronavirus. America Dissected is a product of Crooked Media. Our producer is Austin Fisher. Adriana Cargill mixes and masters the show. Production support from Tara Terpstra, Lyra Smith, and Allison Falzetta. The theme song is by Takia Suzawa and Alex Tuguera. Our executive producer is Sarah Geisman. And I'm your host, Dr. Abdul El-Sayed. Thanks for listening. <laughs>